Rena spent 14 years as a deputy district attorney for the LA County's DA office, where she spent the majority of her career prosecuting cases of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. She continues to serve women today as both a certified women's intimacy coach and educator with a mission to help women love their bodies, experience deep intimacy, and have great sex shame-free. She educates hundreds of women per month on a variety of topics pertaining to sex, intimacy, and relationships. Her signature shameless coaching program has transformed the lives of dozens of women and counting by helping them liberate themselves from shame and discover deeper intimacy. This was a really, really great interview. I enjoyed this one a lot, so I know you're going to love it too. Please join me in welcoming Rena to the show. introduce yourself and your work, kind of like your backstory to our audience? Sure. Uh, My name is Rena Martine, and I am a certified women's intimacy coach and educator. I spent 14 years as a deputy district attorney with the Los Angeles County DA's office, where I specialized in cases of sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic violence. And I continue to serve women today. Um, as a coach through my eight-week signature shameless coaching program, and also um, as a sex educator on a variety of online wellness platforms where I teach a variety of classes on sexuality, relationships, and intimacy. Um, And my mission is to help women love their bodies, experience deep intimacy, and have great sex shame-free. Yeah, that's the goal, right? <laughs> the that is the goal, goal, woman. So do you mind me asking how you got into such important, intense work? Ooh, like at the DA's office? Yeah, we could start there. Yeah. You know, it's so strange because I went to college to be a music journalist. Wow. Right? <laughs> and, um, and my first year of college, I took a criminology class mm-hmm. as an elective. And I had never been so absolutely fascinated with an area of, of study before. And I was like, this is my thing. And so I kept diving further and further into it. And I thought, okay, well, what, what do I do with this? I can either go on and get a master's degree, get a PhD, and just become an academic. Or do I become a cop and, you know, wander the streets with a gun? I'm not really that person. And I thought, you know... I would love to make a change in people's lives. I want to be a prosecutor. And I've always been interested in the interplay between why people commit crimes and then how to bring justice to these survivors who are victims of these crimes afterwards. So landed my dream job at the age of 25 years old with the largest prosecutorial agency in the United States. And, um, spent the majority of my career doing what I was doing, helping survivors. And when the system worked as it is designed to work, it was the best job in the world. And when it didn't, it was the most devastating job in the world. And um, after about 10 years of doing that, I realized that, um, that it wasn't satisfying me in the way that I needed it to, because I couldn't deliver justice to a lot of these survivors. I started doing other kinds of work within the DA's office, prosecuting non-sexual related cases. And that wasn't really lighting me up anymore. And so I thought, what can I do to kind of take out the middleman here, to take out the justice system, to take out that uncertainty? 
and just start working with women directly. And simultaneously over the last few years, I was going through my own healing journey of sexual shame, working through that. And so it all kind of came colliding together um, where I start, I got a coaching certification and started working with women. And it became wildly apparent to me that they are, there are so many women out there who, who need this kind of help. And I couldn't do both anymore. I couldn't be an attorney and do this. And so I abandoned my lengthy legal career to devote myself to doing this now and helping and reaching as many women as I can, because it took me years to figure out how to do this for myself. And I created something where if this had existed at the beginning of my journey, it wouldn't have taken me years. <laughs> and, and that's the long winded answer to your very short question of how I got to where I am today. Yeah, it's funny because I, I feel like a lot of people in helping professions such as coaching um, or even being a DA, like it's at least for me, from my experience, I want to give other people what I couldn't have back then, help people in ways that I wish I could have been helped. So I that's really admirable. And we're going to talk so much about the coaching but I want to mention, like, I could talk to you for an entire episode on the legal system, uh, because as a domestic violence survivor myself, um, I remember how the system failed me. I wanted to, um, I just wanted to report my ex-abuser, not to get him in any sort of trouble. I just wanted to have it on record so that when he abuses someone else, because he would, um, right. I wanted it to be noted that he's a repeat offender and they either gave me the option of not reporting at all or they would have to arrest him and I would have to take it to court. And I did not want to open that can of worms. So I was so devastated. And I think you probably saw those extremes over and over again in your position, I'm assuming. I did. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I had a conversation with somebody who's... um an advocate for incest survivors a few months ago. And, um, it, it, when I was seeing the kind of the worst parts of how the jury system fails us corresponded with when me too was happening. Oh, wow. And so literally within the same week that I think it was Louis CK, his entire tour got canceled because of allegations that were made against him. I got a hung jury on a case where two young girls had been, been sexually assaulted by the same man, where the jury um, didn't want to believe this had happened. And we had overwhelming evidence. And so just seeing how if you're not abused by the right person, and I'm using air quotes here, and I know the listeners won't be able to see that, but if you're not abused by somebody who's in high enough power in this day and age that your experience can be erased yep. and that there, um, there was just such injustice that I was seeing like turning on the TV or listening to NPR and then seeing how this actually plays out in real time. And that was, that was the breaking point for me in, in my career. And I am sorry that you can understand where I'm coming from, that you have had the experience of seeing where that paradox lies for a lot of survivors. Yeah. So yeah, it's real. It's real. It's such a struggle. It's so challenging, especially as a survivor, even um, 
the first time I was sexually assaulted, I was 18 years old. And I didn't even know that reporting was an option. And I had that guilt, that survivor guilt within me that I didn't want to ruin this person's career. I didn't want to get him in trouble. It was sort of a shame embarrassment inside of me for what had happened. And then a year later, I tried reporting it to the school and they took my report, but they essentially asked me, did you have any evidence or proof? And I feel like there's no other crime that I can think of where perpetrators get away and get to walk away and survivors of that feel so invalidated. I can't think of any other crime. It is. And and it's so tricky with sexual assault cases, especially if we're talking about minors, because they very rarely report right away. Of course. And so by the time they do report, there's no biological evidence remaining, right? And so the, the investigative tools that you have to try to piece together the proof that you're going to need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, like your toolbox becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. And even when you do have good evidence, um, the reality is this, that jurors, the average person, doesn't want to believe that this happens. They would... I, Whenever I had a case where it was a stranger who, you know, essentially picked a woman off the street and raped her, no problem. Guilty verdict very quickly because we like to think of, of sex crimes like that, right? When it's a family member, when it's a person, an authority figure, and the two people know each other, juries don't like to convict on that because it threatens their own sense of safety within their own families, within their own work environments, within the schools their kids go to. And they don't want to believe that that's the world they live in. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And the sad reality is that that's most cases of sexual violence is when you know the person, whether it's a friend, a family member, a co-worker, someone you go to school with. It's yes, it's hardly ever, you know, the former. I mean, it's not that it's hardly ever, but it's so much more common that you know, live with, maybe have dated or dating or married to the person. Exactly. It's like people who have um, a really strong fear of a stranger breaking into their house in the middle of the night and murdering them, right? Or, you know, a serial killer, that kind of thing. And it's like, you are so much more likely to be murdered by your spouse than you are (laughs) by a stranger who's going to pick your house and come in and kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I guess, on their side, on the legal system side, they don't want to admit to themselves that that's the reality. They would rather just pretend it doesn't happen and sweep it under the rug. And and I'm so happy you're on during this time because it's actually Domestic Violence Awareness Month, a really special yeah. month to me. And I just send you so much appreciation because I remember when I was going to that domestic violence shelter and the dedicated and committed and such strong um, attorneys that were working for women like me. And we couldn't do it without you. And they're few and far between. Like, it's it's such a difficult population, I imagine. It is. And domestic violence cases are particularly tricky because so many women who report then want to recant and retract. Mm-hmm. And so we're often dealing with what essentially become hostile witnesses mm-hmm. where they come in and, and they change their story. And it's understandable why that happens. There's an entire psychology behind this, which I'm sure you're aware of. But um, it's, it definitely adds another layer of complexity. But 
and I don't want to get too off track here, but, but juries would much rather convict a person in a domestic violence case where the survivor is recanting than in a case where they're actually willing to prosecute. And it's, again, such an interesting paradox, Mm -hmm. because if a woman comes in and you can tell she's lying about the fact that, well, no, I just, you know, I stepped into a doorknob and I made the whole thing up. He never hit me. They can tell like, oh, she's lying. And we almost want to punish her and him for doing it. But then if a woman comes in and is like, yeah, he beat me. That's my husband. He beat me. It's like, well, what does she have to gain by this? Is it because she's trying to get custody over the kids? And they'll try. It's it's such a fascinating thing that happens in that jury deliberation room. And having done this for as long as I have and, you know, seeing what my colleagues have gone through and going through as many trainings as I had to go through as a DA, this is a phenomenon that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. And which is another reason why it made my job so damn difficult. I can only imagine how like draining and exhausting that must be. I mean, I'm going to for my doctorate in forensic psychology. So this is the population that I'm looking to work with as well. Um, But I can only imagine like the boundaries you must have had to make between your career and yourself, because that is, it's so complicated. Right. And, and it's hard not to get involved in our work, like take it on personally sometimes. But I'm sure that as a lawyer, you had to practice that like, boundaries within yourself every day. Well, it's it's funny that you say that because I started when I was so young. I mean, if you think yeah. about it, 25 years old, your prefrontal cortex yeah. isn't even fully developed yet, right? Like um and and so it wasn't until I stopped doing those kinds of cases that I realized that I had just been living in a constant stress cycle for a decade. And once I transitioned out of that and started doing other kinds of cases within the DA's office, that's when I saw how much vicarious trauma I had actually suffered. And that's when I realized that I had been suffering it. I, I didn't actually know that I, um, that I was missing those boundaries. Mm-hmm. So, and I think part of that had to do with my age. So I started doing this so young that I just, I couldn't see the toll it was taking on me until I had exited out of it. Yeah. Kudos to you though, because I'm 27 and I'm still figuring out what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, it's not, I mean, look, I'm turning 40 in a few weeks and I'm, I've just changed careers in a, in a pretty drastic way. Yeah. So there's no, there's no age that's right or wrong here. Absolutely. And I feel like as people in society, especially in the U S like we have this invisible, like, cloak of pressure on us to have it all figured out, to have our life settled and look a certain way by the age of 30. And then if we're not living up to that timeline, we feel this pressure on ourselves, like we're failing. Yeah. And I think the pressure with your generation looks a lot different than it does Mm -hmm. with mine too. Like I I teach a class on sex and love across generations and looking at, um, how people within your generation and even people younger than you, um, you're getting married a lot later because the the pressure is, no, I want to have my career and my life and all that stuff in order before I even start trying to start a life with someone. So that's how those statistics are trending. Whereas 
you know, back in my parents' generation, it was like, no, we're, we're kind of figuring this out together. Right. Mm. And, and so we are seeing a tremendous amount of pressure, um, as, as, you know, time passes on in the younger generations feeling like I got to get this together. Cause I can't even start trying to find my person until I've got it all together. Right. I don't know if you feel that pressure and I'm not, I'm not trying to yeah. bucket you in with everyone. I'm just, I'm talking about trends that, you know, the research supports here. Yeah. And it's, it's so exhausting. So I think that the work that you're doing, let's talk about that a little bit more on your website. It says your path to empowerment starts in the bedroom. I could not agree more, but can you explain to our listeners why that is? Because some people might not even correlate the two. Yeah. So what I've found is that for women, our sexuality, our emotional vulnerability, our intimacy, essentially, and all the things that compose our intimacy, often that is the most hidden and shameful part of who we are. It's the thing that's locked so deep within us. And if you can go in and heal that part of you, it heals everything. If you heal your intimacy, you heal your life. And, um, you know, that was my story, but also what I see play out with my clients because they will find their empowerment when it comes to intimacy. And it doesn't just stay in the bedroom. It extends far beyond and then they'll come to me and say, oh, my gosh, I quit my job today. And look, I'm not a career coach, right? I didn't tell her to quit her job. Um, or I set a huge boundary at work. I hear a lot of work stuff coming up. And this is just because if you can learn to be shameless and shame-free when it comes to the thing that you have the most shame about, then you kind of become shame-free in the rest of your life, too. It affects your family relationships. It affects your platonic relationships. It affects everything. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say your path to empowerment starts in the bedroom, because if you can get in there and fix that, it kind of fixes everything else for you. Yeah, it spirals out and impacts every area of our life. And I think in, in our culture, like sexuality is so dismissed. You know, we talk so much about physical health. Now mental health is starting to be brought out into the, the mix, but it's it's all three components. It's mental, physical, and sexual health. They all impact one another. And intimacy doesn't necessarily mean just having sex. Intimacy is so much deeper than that. So can you get a little bit into what true, authentic intimacy looks like? Yeah, so intimacy to me is a knowing closeness and you can have sex without being intimate and you can have intimacy without having sex but the key to intimacy is showing up as yourself it is being vulnerable it is not playing the cool girl and not playing games and trust me as a reformed cool girl who knew all the games and all the tricks <laughs> in the book um it is so much better on this side of it and yeah your capacity, your capacity for getting hurt skyrockets, but your capacity for absolute love, joy, and connection far outweighs any of the risks, in my opinion. So to have intimacy, you need vulnerability, but you can't be vulnerable unless you've worked on the shame component. And, you know, Brene Brown, she, I, I, 
applaud her as the world's expert on shame and vulnerability. And she's someone I, I really admire whose work that I rely on when it comes to my own work with my clients on shame and, and vulnerability. But that's really where it starts is with the shame. We heal through that. And then we say, okay, we've worked through that. You understand that there's nothing wrong with you wanting these things. There's nothing wrong for you with you being this person. So then how do we get you to openly express who you are? And then that's where the intimacy comes in. Beautifully said. Do you find that, because on your website, it talks about loving the body. And as a woman in, I identify as a woman, a lot of my listeners are female identifying. As a woman in 2021, it is nearly impossible to not have shame around your body, whether it's what your body feels like or what your body looks like. So I'm wondering, is that a common theme that you see brought up in your coaching is shame around the body? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most universal, um, perfectionism being number one and and body image kind of ties into that. But, um, you think about it this way. If, if women tomorrow started loving their bodies, all women think of how many industries would collapse as a result of that. Right. We are the, literally capitalist society is founded on us having an antagonistic relationship to our bodies. And I think we are starting to see a positive trend in um, in body positive imagery, body positive uh, models, size inclusive models, <clears throat> social media accounts. Um, and so I tell a, a lot of my my students, a lot of my clients you got to be mindful of the media you consume that we have these phones in our hands, right? And they're basically a remote control to the entire world and you get to pick which channel you watch. So if you're going to, if you're going to watch, you know, some crap reality TV, (laughs) fine, but ask yourself, am I going to feel better or worse about my body after having watched this? If I'm going to follow this account on Instagram, am I going to feel better or worse about my body afterwards? So just be mindful of what's going in, what you're consuming. Yeah, 100%. Sometimes, at least I'll speak for myself, I do it to myself. You know, I know I'm scrolling on Instagram and it's not helpful. I always feel worse about it. And then I see how that personally affects me in my own relationship. I have these ruminating thoughts like, oh, I bet he's wishing he was with the girl that I saw on Instagram earlier this day. And it's so, sometimes social media can be so toxic, but like you said, it's also, there's that body positivity movement that's also can be really empowering. So I guess it depends on how you use it. And you know, it's interesting, Lauren, because I live in Los Angeles, um, right? (laughs) You're like, say no more. Um, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles and Los Angeles, probably more so than anywhere in the United States is the Mecca of fitness, plastic surgery, you know, actors, models and all this. And I, I don't conform to the, again, air quotes, um, standard physique and standard image of LA beauty. And so I am bombarded with this almost like just me existing out in this space and in this world on a daily basis. And so I've had to do a lot of my own work to, to be okay and love my body. 
and not accept my body because some people say, I just want to accept myself the way I am. And it's like, no, we'll accept a lot of things. We'll accept, um, you know, a disgusting TV dinner if we're starving. We'll accept it. But I, I think we can do better than accept. I think we can love. And it's how do we love our bodies in a society that is literally built on us hating our bodies. Mm. It's a really interesting distinction. I've never thought of it like that. Do you, what would you say, like the difference between the acceptance and love, that's, that's super intriguing. And my mind is kind of blown because I've never thought of it that way. How and I will someone... say to give credit where credit's due, that analogy about the TV dinner is um, from Sonia Re Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology, which is a fantastic yes. book about oh. radical self-love and loving your body. So I, I just wanted I to give that. her credit for that. I did not make that oh. up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard about that book. I've heard it on podcasts. I've seen it on Instagram. I need to read it because it, it's like feels like everything I need to know in a book. <laughs> it's so wonderful. So what would you say are like some proactive tools that people can start taking towards that body, radical body love? Yeah. So I actually have developed um, a method or a framework that I like to use and it's called the camp method, C-A-M-P. And so the C is compassion. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to yourself and don't say anything to yourself that you wouldn't say to a little version of you, to your daughter, to your niece, to your best friend, you know, right? Have compassion for yourself. Um, the A is adoration. So spend a week and every day, look at yourself in the mirror naked and write down one thing that you see that you like. And I can tell you, this is one of the hardest exercises <laughs> for my clients because again, right? We're programmed to look for the flaws, and but this is how we begin to reprogram ourselves is to say, okay, I'm going to use a different filter, right? I'm going to use a filter where I'm looking for the good. So do that for a week. Um, M is media awareness, media consumption, which I think, you know, we just talked about, but be mindful of what you're consuming and ask yourself, is this going to make me feel better or worse about my body after I consume it? And P, which I think is a really big one is perspective. And I always, I always tell folks, think about the best lover you've ever had sexually. And did that person have a air quotes, perfect body, right? Mm -hmm. um, think about your boyfriends or your girlfriend or your partner. Um, do you think they're used to dating porn stars, right? Do you think they're used to sleeping? So just understanding that um, you are comparing yourself to a standard that is unrealistic in general, but also unrealistic for your partner too. Because I think we we worry about that a lot, right? Like you were saying, is is my is my partner looking at this, wishing that I look like her? And it's like, you know, when you think back to the best lovers you've ever had, the best sex you've ever had. These are typically people who know don't have perfect bodies, but they felt co confident and comfortable in their own skin. Mm. So I find that that's such a powerful way to reframe it. Like, wow, if I was with this person who's not, you know, an LA 10, um, who just owned how he or she was in their body and 
that was the sexiest thing I've experienced. Why can't I be allowed to feel sexy in my body? Oh, that's so powerful. I love that. I have goosebumps because that is so true. Like we don't place the expectations on other people that we put on ourselves. And I would love to talk about great sex for a minute because something as a sex educator, I hear a lot or get questions. They're like, what is the best like position I could do to like spice up my sex life? And I personally think that what makes great sex is that, that, connection, that intimacy, and that self-confidence. Would you agree? What do you think makes great sex? Yeah, and I think great sex is such an amorphous term. But yeah, yeah. that part of it is is feeling safe, yep. is feeling confident, feeling safe, and also just going into sex and seeing this as play, mm-hmm. seeing this as a place, as Esther Perel says, you know, sex isn't a thing you do, it's a place you go. And seeing this as a way to escape mindfully because we don't play enough as adults seeing this as a way to surrender seeing this as a way to be mindful and in your body and as a meaningful way to connect with another person that's what I think great sex is Mm, so yummy that's a great definition (laughs) I love it do you listen to Brene and Esther's podcasts Oh, woman. Yes. I listened to that the other night. It was so good. So good. And those two have such, they're dynamic together. Yes. Right. Because they're both such firecrackers, but so different from one another. I just, yeah, it was such a pleasure. And I hope that they have another conversation soon because I could not get enough of that. Yes. You should check out, if you don't know her already, Glennon Doyle Melton. She is like, she's on that level of Brene. Yeah. She's on oh, that yeah. level Untamed was like, oh yeah. Oh yes. yeah. I, I am a, I'm a big fan of Glennon Doyle. Yes. I love it. And right. anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Brene Brown, Esther Perel and Glennon Doyle are, stop listening right now. Yes. I give <laughs> you kidding. permission. <laughs> Listen to the end, but then go and consume as much as you can from those three women because they are some of my heroes. Yeah. They're definitely pioneers in their field in their industry. I think if they're listening to my podcast, they have to know at least one of those individuals. Right. Okay. All right. Cool. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I want to end with you talking about your coaching, your shameless coaching sounds super, super empowering. And can you talk a little bit about what that entails, what that looks like? And I know you mentioned the camp method, maybe other things that go into it. Yeah. And, you know, camp, it's funny. That's a method that I don't actually um, use within my program. It's something I developed wow. when I educate. Cool. But um, I don't call it the camp method in my program. But, okay, breakdown. If you were like, Rena, I think I might want to work with you. What's the process? Um we, I would find out a little bit more information. And if I felt like it falls within my wheelhouse, we'd hop on a 45 minute consultation. If I'm a hundred percent confident, I can help you. Then that's when the option of joining the shameless program would come in because I'm, I only want to work with women that I'm a hundred percent confident I can help. And then it's an eight week long program. It's a hybrid of one-on-one work with me you get also some special um, bonus sessions with two other coaches on my team 
who are specifically trained in other areas. One is a former medical professional who's now a stress mindset and burnout coach. Okay. And the other one is trained, trained in um, regenerating images in, me in memory, which is a subconscious technique that was developed by a psychotherapist. And so you get some focus work with them. We have our weekly one-on-ones together. There's a group um, call that we have once a week. So you're part of a community and I allow my former clients to come to that group still. Mm -hmm. So you still, even once our eight weeks are done, you still get to be a part of that. And during our sessions, I take notes so that my clients can be fully present. Mm -hmm. And unlike therapists or unlike most therapists, I think, um, I share my notes with my clients after our session. And I give them their homework. We come up with unique action steps for them. But it follows a very specific order and a specific process for a reason. We start with the mind because that's where so many of us are stuck is we're stuck in our heads all the time. So we do what I like to call brain hacking, which is going in and using evidence-based techniques rooted in neuroscience to start changing the way you think and start changing the way you perceive the world and then perceive yourself. We do some subconscious work since we know that 95% of our actions and beliefs are coming from the subconscious. So we do subconscious work and then we move into the body and we integrate body and mind. We do some somatic work. Um, my clients do some mirror work on their own. And then we get to the soul, which is, you know, who are you and what do you really want? And what are the questions that you've never asked yourself before? Because how can you articulate to somebody else what you want in the bedroom if you've never been asked these questions? Mm -hmm. And so by the time they leave the program, they have worked through some of these subconscious blocks that have probably been in there since they were kids, really. And, um, and work through where, where is this messaging I got, you know, as a kid, um, about what a woman's role is, about what self-pleasure is, you know, all these things. And by the end of it, they almost have like this entire catalog of who they are and what they want. And then I give them access to their electronic folder of all the work they've done while we've been together. And they can always come back to that and access it or add to it or, you know, use it in whatever way um, is best for them. For my clients who are still in therapy, some of them find it useful to share that with their therapist. Mm. So that's the big overview of how it works. Ooh, it sounds incredible. It's a, it's pretty that. good. It's pretty good. And I've had now, um, let's see, uh, last week I celebrated 30 women who had graduated from the program already. And I think since then I've had maybe five or six women graduate. So um, this program started in February of this year wow. and that's how many women have been through it mm -hmm. and um, with really incredible results and all their stories are on my website, on my testimonials page and, and they're all different, different walks of life, um, different sexual preferences, just a variety um, and they all leave it in a much better place than where they started and more empowered and I love doing what I do. Oh, it sounds like it. it sounds like you're so passionate. And I really love the diversity and like the full how comprehensive and holistic it is because that's something you mentioned is really pivotal. I love therapy, but I'm also in coaching because in therapy, a lot of times it's 
you don't get those action steps after 45 minutes. Okay, I feel better. But what am I going to do about it now? Like, unless you put those practical steps into motion, your life most likely won't make a 180, you know? So that's what I well, love about what, coaching. Right. Like that's kind of what Nicola Perra talks about, right? The holistic psychologist yeah. and how to do the work is like, I kept seeing these same clients coming in week after week after week and they would get it. They would walk out of my office and they, they would get it, but then nothing changed yep. and really understanding. And she talks about the subconscious too, right? Yep. Is, is that there's a limit to what you can do in conventional therapy because yeah. therapists aren't supposed to tell you go out and do this, yeah. right? There's there's a limit to what therapists can do ethically, you know. Sure. But if you sign up with a coach, part of their job is to hold you accountable mm -hmm. and to push you out of your comfort zone and to give you homework, and that's um, part of the beauty of it. And I love therapy and I love coaching. And I think you're right that that they can exist alongside each other so beautifully, mm -hmm. so beautifully. Yeah. And the subconscious is everything. So I'm really happy that you unpack that as well with the people in the program. It's really important. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. I want to end by, do you have three top podcasts or book suggestions for our audience to check out? Okay. So um, top podcast. Uh, the Savage Love Cast, which is Dan Savage's Dan Savage, podcast, yeah. because that podcast, I swear to you, changed my life. Um, so that books, oh my gosh, too many. I mean, Untamed, which we already talked yes. about. Um, that was my best read of uh, in the last year. That really just like lit a fire in yes. my belly. <laughs> and then, um, you know, Come As You Are, which I consider to be the Bible when it comes yeah. to female sexuality. And that's by Dr. Emily Nagoski, who is right now well known for the book burnout that she and her yeah. twin sister wrote together, but come as you are. If you are just looking to dive in and get started and understand female sexuality really comprehensively with a beautiful voice, because her voice is so friendly yeah. and reassuring that book is where you start. Yeah. Do you watch Sex Education on Netflix? I love how they mentioned it in season three. I have not. Okay. I watched season one. And so, okay, maybe woman, I barely have time to watch any TV. And so I have a running <laughs> list of all the things, right? Yeah. But Sex Education is on that list. And mm -hmm. now this gives me a reason to go watch it too. Yes. I, I mean, that oh. must have made her day. Yeah. It's, it's honestly so funny but it's so educational, which I love. And, and I'm like watching it with my boyfriend and I'm like nudging him, like take tips, take, take tips. Oh, I mean, if you want some books for men to read too, I'm happy to recommend those. Yes, please recommend. Um, I, I think Come As You Are is a really good one for men as well. And She Comes First mm -hmm. by Dr. Ian Kerner is also one that was pretty much written for men. Yeah. Um, and there's another book that I think is great for both men and women called... Um, not always in the mood hmm. and that's by Sarah Hunter Murray. And that's all about the new science of men's sex and relationships okay. because there is a trend now where we've really done a lot of research on female sexuality, yeah. but the men are kind of being ignored sure. and what the new data and research is showing us is that a lot of these preconceptions we've had about male sexuality are completely false. Yeah. So I think it's great for women to read 
I think it's great for men to read too, though, to validate their experience and for them to know, like, I'm normal. So um, those would be my top three for for men and or non-binary. I, I, I hate to be so gendered about oh, this, but hopefully your listeners will forgive me um, in that regard and that you kind of you understand what I'm talking about. For sure. <laughs> No worries. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Cause I've never heard of that one before. So I'll have to check that one out. It's a good one. I did a book club on it um, a few months ago in one of the platforms I teach on. And yeah, she's a sex researcher and she might be a therapist too. Huh. I think she's a therapist. Great book. Great yeah, book. Super cool. I love it. Well, thank you, Rena. Can you tell people where they can find you if they want to check out your work? Absolutely. You can head on over to my website, which is renamartine.com, and I'll spell that out, R-E-N-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-E.com, or look me up on Instagram, renamartine. Great. I'll link all of those in the show notes for people to find you. And thanks so much. This was so interesting. I think you're like the coolest person in the world. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. No, this is so great. I normally don't get... that much of an opportunity to really dig into the legal system. So this was, this was different than most of the podcasts I go on. I so thank you for that, that space. <laughs> Absolutely. 